0: And the very first half of Acts chapter 11 is basically telling and retelling the same story or the same testimony. Now, I don't want to undermine that in any way, because if you know anything about Scripture, whenever the Lord repeats something in Scripture, it means it's pretty what? It's pretty important. Uh, As a matter of fact, if you begin to look at the story of Cornelius, and I think Brother John was able to share the first half of, of Acts 10 with you, last week. But when you begin to look at the, the story of Cornelius and how the gospel, the, the early church really was awakened to this reality that the gospel was even for the Gentiles and, and how they missed that up until that point, I'm really still not quite sure, but I'm sure I would have missed it too. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But this unique individual, Cornelius, is the, one of the, uh, the, the agents that the Lord used to, to show the early church that his plan of salvation was for all nations from the very beginning. And so we see it in the story of Cornelius. As he gets a vision, Peter is praying... Peter gets a vision. That's the vision of the the sheep being dropped from heaven from the four corners of the earth. And and it represents all of the people of the earth. It's an unclean animal that the the Lord told Peter, you know, rise and eat. And and Peter was like, never, Lord, I'll never eat anything unclean. But the Lord was trying to show Peter, I'm not really talking about food here, Peter. I'm really talking about people and that you guys have been alienating yourselves from Gentiles for generations. But now I'm trying to communicate this truth to you that the gospel is even for the Gentiles. And so it was about that time when Peter got, you know, snapped out of his vision that these men had come from Cornelius to invite Peter to Cornelius' home. Peter gets there. The story is kind of retold again as he's there. And we're going to talk a little bit about what Peter has to say as he has an opportunity to share the gospel with these Gentiles in Caesarea. And so and then later, after all of this happens and the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles as a sign that God has poured out his spirit on all people. uh, Peter goes back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And guess what he does? He retells the story again because there were people in uh, some of the, uh, it says people from the party of the circumcision party there in Jerusalem, people who still probably believed that before you could become a follower of Jesus, you had to become a Jew first and then you could be incorporated into the family of God. And so there was a, a large group of people in Jerusalem who still held on to these beliefs. So when Peter comes back to report to them what happened, they're, um, they, they can't understand it. They're criticizing him. He shares the testimony with them again, and it says they all just fell silent. And they're like, this this is God. This is definitely God's plan that even the Gentiles were granted repentance unto life. And so again, I kind of recap and summarize all of that for you this morning because without having to go back and read through every single verse, and we're going to cover several of the verses this morning, but I wanted to let you know that this is a significant moment in the life of the early church. And so I don't want to skip over that. Now, having said that, this, really, this message came down to two basic things for me. This message came down to two basic things. Those two things are a, a comparison and a contrast. I'll put it to you this way. And that comparison and the contrast comes down to this. There are those who show partiality or favoritism, and then there are those who are impartial. And we're talking about I'm talking about us because the scripture is going to tell us here in just a minute that God himself shows no partiality, he shows no favoritism. In the old King James, some of you may have read it this way He is no respecter of persons. So we're going to look at that and we being created in the image of God, what are the implications and the application for you and me today knowing that God does not show partiality so then how do we live as his image bearers, as his representatives and followers here on the face of the earth? But also there's another thing at play here I believe that, that really ties these two things together is that there are those who live in the fear of man or seeking the approval I should say of man which plays into partiality and favoritism. We're going to see how those are connected today. And then there are those who live in the fear of the Lord. Something that I think we overlook and and we fail to teach adequately sometimes in the life of the church is that we fail to teach the healthy fear and reverence of God and how that applies to you and me today as well. So those are kind of the two big topics, the big themes that I think are going on through this, this message today. And so the title of the message is Favoritism. And the fear of the Lord. So let's jump in. And I want you to just look at, at, at Acts 10 just to go back a little bit. Because we're going to look at Cornelius for just a second. And if you look at Cornelius in Acts 10, you see, you pick up on things like this. Because his character is described multiple times in this text. If you look at his character in Acts 10, look at what it says about Cornelius. Um, let's see where we are here. Cornelius. Acts 10, look at verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God. There's the fear of the Lord. With all of his household, he gave alms generously to people and prayed continually to God. That, that pretty much would be a better description than most deacons of a church, right? I mean, This man is a, is a, is a Gentile. He's, he's trying to identify with the God of Israel. He's, he's not. He hasn't converted to Judaism yet, but this is his description here. He's a devout man. He's a God-fearer. He, he gives generously to the poor. He's a man of prayer. Think about that. Now, if you, if you fast forward a little bit more, um, his, his, um, in verse 22, his character is described again there. It says, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the Jewish nation. And it starts talking about how he saw a vision. So let's talk about Cornelius for just a second. The first thing I want to share with you this morning when it comes to favoritism and the fear of the Lord is that Cornelius may have been a good and a generous man by our standards, but he was not good enough for God's standard. I think it's important that we understand this this morning. Because if we're not careful, we start to look at somebody like Cornelius, and we say, well, there's no... We see why God came to him in a vision. We see why the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Cornelius and his whole household. We see why God chose this man to be the representative of the Gentiles as the Spirit of God being given to all nations. Because look, look at, man, he was a a good man. He was a God-fearing man. He gave to the poor. He was a man of prayer. He was a devout man, an upright man. All of these things that we, by our estimation, We like to measure ourselves by ourselves. And I think it's very important this morning that we understand that, yes, Cornelius was a good man by our standard, but he was just not good enough for God. One thing he lacked, out of all the good things that Cornelius had done in his lifetime, there was one thing that he still lacked. He was still a sinner, and he was a sinner who was guilty before a holy God. He wasn't. On, he wasn't the only God-fearing Gentile in the land, right? I mean, we understand even in the lifetime of Jesus, Jesus ran upon several Gentiles, even some other centurions who were God fearing men. They, they, they identified with the God of Israel. They were humble men. They, they understood that there was something different about the one unique Yahweh, the God of Israel. So it's not that Cornelius was just the only God fearing Gentile or the only God fearing centurion in the land, but for some reason, God chose him in this story to uh, give him this revelation, this vision, so that he could show Peter that the gospel and God's plan of redemption did extend indeed to the Gentiles. So we don't need to give Cornelius some type of credit necessarily with some unique spiritual status as if he was some man more righteous than others. Now, according to our standards, he may have been. But do we ever measure ourselves according to our own standards, or should we? We should not. We get ourselves into big trouble when we start doing that. You know why? Why? Because no matter who you are and what you've done, you can always find somebody who's just a little bit worse off than you are, right? And that makes you feel better about yourself. And we are masters at doing this. So Cornelius, yes, he was on the right track. Yes, he had good works and good deeds. But in and of themselves, they fall desperately short of God's standard, which is, let me remind you this morning, what is God's standard? Let's just go ahead and go there right now. What is God's standard? Do you know what God's standard is for you and me this morning? It is perfect righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, how many of us fall into that category? You see what I'm doing? Perfect righteousness. Now, Paul says it this way in the book of Galatians. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Let me say that again. Listen to what he says. For anyone who's relying on their work or they're keeping God's law, the Ten Commandments, God's moral standard. He says, Anybody who's trying to live by the law is under a what? You're cursed. Those are strong words. He says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. James, in the book of James, said it this way. He says, if you were perfect at keeping the entire law, which none of us could even come close, but let's just... Let's just humor ourselves for just a minute. If any of us could just try to keep the law our entire lives and we were perfect at every point of keeping the law and we stumbled at just what? At just one commandment. If we just, if we just broke one of God's commandments, James says we are guilty of breaking it all because that, that would mean we are classified as sinners, lawbreakers. We'll see, it doesn't matter if you've broken one commandment or a thousand, you're a lawbreaker, you're a sinner. And so that's what we have to be conscious of when we read a story like this and we think about who Cornelius was, and yes, he was a good man by our standard, but we must realize that our criminal record, when we think about adding up the things that we've done, breaking God's law, failing to do the things we're supposed to do, doing things that we're not supposed to do over time, is far more extensive than we could ever care to admit. And according to God's word, if we're, we are cursed if we're relying on our own good works to get us to heaven. Any type of moral uh, improvement or moral effort on our part trying to earn our way or work our way to heaven, God says, you fall under a curse. Why? Because his standard is perfect righteousness. Now, that's why the gospel communicates something called substitutionary atonement that there must be an, an innocent, perfect, spotless sacrifice in our place so that His righteousness can be credited to our account. That's what happens at salvation, is that there must be one that lived a perfectly righteous life, who met all the standards of God's law, who lived this life that we could not live, and through faith in that one, then his righteousness is then applied to us. That's what it means to be justified Before God, We need to always understand that. And of course, the good news is, as we light the Advent candle, as we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that there has been only one person who has ever lived and ever walked on the face of this earth who was perfectly righteous in everything that he said, did, thought, even the motivations of his heart were right before God. And his name is Jesus. That's why he's unique. That's why Cornelius needed someone just like you and me need someone to live a perfectly righteous life for us because we can't do it. It's been said that even good men in the end still need a gracious God because we can never be good enough. Um, Andy Stanley wrote a little book years ago, and and I don't agree with everything Andy Stanley says, but I, I read this book one time, and it was a very good book. And it was basically, it said this, the title of the book was, How Good is Good Enough? And I want y'all to think about that for just a second. If any of you are in this room today and you're thinking that it because of your good efforts and your good works and because you think you're a good person in any way, form, or fashion, let me ask you this question. How do you know when you've been good enough? At what point in your life do you think that you've done enough good to earn your way to heaven? And really, if we're trying to earn our way to heaven by our good works and doing good deeds, I want you to think about it from this perspective as well. Basically, what we are saying is, is that God, because of what I've done, you owe it to me now. Because I've what? I've worked for it. Isn't that how work works? When you work for something, you deserve Payment, you deserve to get paid back something. So when we work our way to heaven, we're telling God, okay, God, I've done all these things. I've done a little bit more good than I've done bad in my lifetime. So now that I stand before you, I'm counting on you to give me what I deserve because you owe it to me. Now, when it's put in that way, most of us will say, Man, I would never think that. But you know how many people in this world, basically every other world religion teaches that form of system. That if you do enough good, if you keep, say enough prayers, you give enough alms, you, you go to the temple enough, all the things that you have to do, then in the end, God's going to outweigh your good from your bad, and he's going to owe you eternal life. That's completely opposite from the gospel. So Cornelius, yes, good man. And you know what? I see it in the church a lot. There are people who have been within the church for years and years, maybe, maybe even brought up in the church, and for some reason... They're putting their hope and their faith in their goodness and their good works thinking that I'm a good man and by our standards you may be, but don't measure yourselves by our standards. We need to begin to measure ourselves by God's standard. And at that point, you have to understand that God demands perfect righteousness on your part to get to heaven. And guess what? You're not gonna get there on your own, right? That's why we need Jesus. Number two, God owes us nothing but has given us everything in Christ Jesus. Look at Acts ten thirty four real quick. So Peter, I love this part because, again, I'm summarizing, but Peter, he gets called by Cornelius' servants. He goes back to Caesarea from Joppa. He's there. Uh, Cornelius brings Peter in. Matter of fact, when he meets Peter, he falls down to his feet to worship him, and Peter's like, ho, oh, man, get up. I'm a man just like you. Do not worship me. He makes it clear, I'm nobody special. But then he brings him into the house and and Cornelius has gathered all his people there, right? So he's like, there's a special man coming to my house. I'm calling all my neighbors, my friends, my family, everybody come So I want you to hear what this man has to say. This is a fascinating passage to me because he gets everyone in the house. He explains to Peter how he had seen this vision and that he was to call Peter to come to Caesarea to share whatever it was he was supposed to share with him. And I bet you, if you look at verse 33... It says, I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Couldn't you just hear a pin drop right there? Everybody's eyes are just fixed on Peter. And Cornelius is like, the reason that we're here is because we're here to hear what you have to say from God. Now tell us what it is. I bet you there was just a moment of, Silence right there. All of this now on Peter. All eyes on Peter. Spotlight now is on Peter. And, and we have to know and understand that no man can respond like Peter responds apart from the working of the Holy Spirit within him because he hits the nail right on the head. He tells him exactly what he's supposed to. He preaches and teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But look at what he says in verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. So before he says anything to them, about what they need to hear about Jesus Christ, about what they need to hear about the gospel, this is basically a declaration where Peter is stepping back and saying, wait a minute, now I get it. These are Gentiles. These aren't Jews. These aren't part of God's chosen people, the chosen race, the chosen nation. These are, you know how Jews consider Gentiles? Dirty, rotten, filthy dogs. Seriously. Seriously. They didn't associate with them. They didn't want to try to mingle with them. They didn't even want to touch them. They didn't want to be in the same place with them. They thought they were the most filthy, dirty, pagan, idolatrous people on the face of the earth, and now Peter is here in the house full of them, and he's like, now I understand. God does not show partiality. You see, God owes us nothing, but he is giving us everything in Christ Jesus. This is what Peter is trying to get down to. Now, God deals with men the exact opposite of how we deal with each other. And this is, this is where I really want to get, start getting down to some practical things in our lives. You see, man, we are notorious for showing partiality, are we not? We're notorious for playing politics. It makes me sick. We like to manipulate the system if we can. We side with favorites so many times. Where I come from down in Mississippi... You know what they call it? The good old boy system. You know somebody, they know somebody, you need something, they'll get it for you, with a little bit of a string attached to that, right? But that's kind of how the system is played with, and it's like people grow up in this system, this worldly system of favoritism and owing favors and showing partiality, and it's just kind of ingrained in who we are. And if you don't believe me, let me give you a couple of examples, because I believe that everybody in this room has either shown partiality to someone or has been shown favoritism by someone or has been slighted by it in some way. I bet you everybody in this room falls into any of those categories. Let me share some examples. How about that unqualified coworker that you've outworked for years, but she gets the promotion because she's really pretty to look at? Anybody ever experienced something like that? How about the stepchild who lives in a home with a stepfather and that stepchild feels it and knows it that that stepfather just doesn't quite love him? as much as he loves his biological children. You don't think that that's partiality, favoritism? Anybody ever experienced that? I'm a baseball coach. I coach my boys for years and years and years. And if anybody ever got accused of playing daddy ball, anybody ever heard of that, where, you know, nepotism, you got your own children on your team, and they're going to be the star player, and this and that, and you got to be careful about all those things. a matter of fact, I, I always tried to go almost to the extreme of the other way, because when I coached my boys, I was always harder on them, and tried to be as fair as I possibly could just to eradicate any type of, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, an, an accusation that I was practicing daddy ball, but, but you know, how many of you out here in the in the world know what I'm talking about when you're like the, the little boy that makes the all-star team, because daddy has given extra money to the team or, or what? You can, you can just fill in the blank right there. We see that happening all the time. Politics playing a role in making judgments and choosing people. What about the judge who perverts justice because he gets a bribe or maybe he's being blackmailed? Or the contractor who gets the big contracting job because he was able to pass just a little bit of money under the table without any of the other bidders to know anything about that? What about the politician Who goes into office thinking, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to live by my convictions. I'm going to change the swamp and give them a couple of years. And after they owe so many favors, because they've had to have had to promise, make too many promises to people along the way. By the time they get there, they're starting to vote against their conscience and their convictions because of favoritism. What about the pastor? who shows preferential treatment to the biggest Tyler in the church. These things happen in every system, on every level. It's happened to all of us, and that's exactly how man operates. And it's sinful. It's inherently wrong. It's a worldly system. It basically says, what can you do for me? I'll see what I can do for you. It's based on conditional promises. It's not based on conditional love. But what about God? This is what I love about God. He doesn't owe us anything. This is why God doesn't show favoritism. This is why God is not partial toward anybody because, first of all, there's nothing that we can give to God that he doesn't already have. You're going to bribe God? What are you going to give to him? You can't manipulate God. He's perfectly just. He always does what is right. He always lives according to his perfect standard. There's nothing that you can do to manipulate him. And, And lastly, God cannot be tempted by evil. So he wouldn't do us any good anyway to try to bribe him or, or manipulate him into doing something that we wanted to do. So that's exactly what it means in my, in my estimation when it says that God shows no partiality, that God does not show favoritism to us, it's simply because God owes us no favors. Think about that for just a second. God owes you and me absolutely nothing which is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing. That's why we sing a hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch like me. Understanding that God didn't owe me anything. If He owes us anything, it's justice. If we start talking about what God owes us, it's condemnation. It's his wrath and judgment. If we start talking about what God owes us, that's what he owes us. We deserve nothing but his judgment, and yet still he has extended grace to everyone. This is why the, the news, the gospel, is such good news. And he's willing to even save anyone who will trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say something like this. It is by grace that we are saved. By, through faith, it is the what? The gift of God okay? It's not of works so that none of us can turn around and boast about it. It's the gift of God. Someone has once said that everyone stands on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Think about that. I like that. See, when it comes to to us acknowledging what Jesus Christ has done for us and how he was willing to lay his life down on the cross when, when we deserve judgment, when we deserve death, when we deserve wrath, when we deserve punishment. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ said, no, I will come and I will give my life and absorb and and exhaust all of that punishment and that judgment and that wrath, and I'll do it on behalf of these people who don't deserve it. That's why we call it grace. It's because we're getting something that we do not deserve. And when we come to the foot of the cross, there's level ground. Why? Because God doesn't care how much money you make. God doesn't care what your status is or your title is. He doesn't care how old you are, how young you are, how pretty you are. He doesn't care uh, male, female, slave, free. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters at the foot of the cross because God is not a partial God. He does not show favoritism. He only shows us mercy because of who he is in his nature, not because of who we are. And so it just happened to be on this account that God said, I'm trying to let you know, church, I'm trying to let you know, Peter, that I have extended mercy to the Gentiles. I have chosen to show compassion to the Gentiles, to the nations, these nations that you abhor, these nations that are, that are idolatrous, these nations that are pagan, that are godless. I'm showing mercy to the nations. It came to the point that when Peter went back to Jerusalem to report back all that God had done to the Gentiles, listen to how the church responded. At first, again, they criticized Peter. Then he shared his testimony about what happened. Listen to what it said in Acts 11:18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. They had nothing to say. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to the Gentiles. Which leads me to my next point. So the good news of God's salvation is for all people from every nation on the earth. I can't tell you how many times I've had a a point like this in your bulletin. Thinking back over the book of Acts and all the way now through 10 or 11 chapters, I've probably had this very same point, I'd bet you five or six different times. Why? Because guys, this is so significant that we understand that from beginning to end, God's plan, yes, he used the Jewish people as a chosen nation, as an instrument of his glory, an instrument of his grace, an instrument of his goodness to all the nations. But from the very beginning, you can even go all the way back to Abraham when God made his promise to Abraham in Genesis twelve three. He said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham in you, all the nations, plural. He didn't say this this nation that I'm creating for myself, which he did, the Jewish nation. He didn't say it's just for you. It's just for this unique group of people. No, he said all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. That's why Jesus Christ came to save people from every nation in the world. Now, when it comes to This relationship with Israel and the nations and all these things, listen, I do believe, and you've heard me preach from this pulpit, there is a unique role for the national people of Israel in the last days. I believe that with all my heart. All the covenants and promises that God made to national Israel, they're still in place, and He still will fulfill them in the future. And we do see that there is a role, a very significant role, that the nation of Israel will play in these last days. So I think it's important to pay attention to what's happening with the Israelites and what's happening in Israel with the people of Israel. But it's not just Israel. You see, I believe that part of this whole process where you see the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles and we see, remember what Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all Samaria, and then to the ends of what? The ends of the earth. And that's what you see happening you see, the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews in, at Pentecost. And then with Philip, when he went to Samaria, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they even see, sent Peter and John to come check it out. And they said, yep, it's, it's for real. that He saved the Samaritans. And now it's the same thing happening here with Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and the Gentiles in Caesarea, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And all of these were signs to approve and to validate that, yes, the the promise that God made and the commandment that God gave to his disciples to reach people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, all of these things are happening now. Now, I think this goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. If you go back and you read in Genesis 10, it's a fascinating study. I'm not going to get into it deeply here, but I want to share it with you because I think it's important. If you read your Old Testament, which is very important, you understand that it was the table of nations. There were 70 nations who were dispersed at the Tower of Babel. All of those nations being led by a godless government as they were seeking to worship another god beside Yahweh, he said, I'm going to give you what you deserve, but I'm going to scatter you. It was actually a sign of mercy and God's grace that he confounded their language. He he scattered them throughout uh, other parts of the world so that they would go form their own separate people groups and ethnic groups, and that's what happened. But think about all of the nations that were scattered at the Tower of Babel. All of them began to serve and worship other gods, didn't they? And it was right after that happened that God called who? Abraham. He said, Abraham, all these other nations, they don't want me. They're going to chase after all these other gods. But it was right after that happened, God said, that's okay. I'm going to make a nation for myself. And it was at the beginning of God's covenant with Abraham, then through Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel. That we see God's plan of redemption to begin. And you know what He has always been about? It wasn't just for the Jewish people. God's plan was always to reclaim all of the what? all of the nations. All of the nations that disowned him and went their own ways at the Tower of Babel. And to this day, if you go and you look, I mean, obviously the spread of Christianity has a great impact in the world today. But you go look at many of the nations today, how godless they are, how they're still following after idols, they're still worshiping false gods. And God's plan of redemption has always been to reclaim people from every single nation on earth. That's the important thing about the gospel. I believe this story right here with Cornelius was just as much for Peter as it was for anybody else. Why do you say that? Because Peter was still part of the... still had the understanding as a a Jewish man. He had an ethnocentric understanding of, of the world. He still believed to some extent that all the promises of God were only for the Jewish people, only for the ethnic race. Of Israel. And God had to get Peter's attention, one of the leaders, if not the leader, of the early New Testament church. And he's had to show Peter for himself that my gospel, my redemption, my plan of salvation is not just for the Jewish people. It's for everybody. It's for all the world. It's for all the nations of the earth. Now, let's just real quickly, how does that apply to you and me today? Because if we're not careful we can end up being much like the early New Testament church who wanted to exclude people who didn't look like them, who didn't dress like them, who didn't talk like them, who didn't smell like them, who didn't worship like them. And guys, if we're not careful here in the New Testament church in Bartlett, Tennessee, we can also become exclusive like that. You see, when it comes to real ministry, we can let our prejudices get in Our way, can we not? Has anybody ever struggled with that? If you want to be completely honest with yourself... I bet you most of you in this room would struggle when it came down to really having to get your hands dirty and really having to meet other people where they are, especially people that don't quite line up with you or the way that you think that they should be or the, or the way that they look or the way that they act or any of those things that we measure people by. Because in, in reality, when it comes to true mission, when it comes to true faith, to follow Jesus Christ, to be a church after God's own heart, is that real ministry is messy It can be very difficult. It can be very uncomfortable for us. Matter of fact, I'll go a step further. It should be uncomfortable because that's what this is all about. God is saying, I'm calling you to go to people that you would not normally go to. I'm calling you to love people that are very difficult to love. Now, I will say this. I want to take a step back because this church, one of the things that amazes me about this church, I feel like we do a pretty good job of that. I feel like we have some ministries in place where we really are serious about trying to make a difference and reach people where they are and minister to people who may not necessarily look like us or dress like us or talk like us. But I think for us to continue to survive and thrive right here in Bartlett, Tennessee, we're going to have to continue to do more and more of that just simply because of the demographics of the, of the neighborhoods and the people around us. We're going to have to be willing to reach people who don't necessarily fit the mold of what we've been grown up, uh, used to understanding of what the church is supposed to be like. I don't know how many of you know uh, the pastor James McDonald. James is a pastor up in Illinois. Uh, He has a teaching, a radio ministry, a television ministry. Um, I read this just a few months ago. James did this. He dressed up like a homeless man outside of his church. And he was blown away by the overall response of his church He said, at first, some people just kind of walked by him and didn't pay much of attention. But he said, overall, the testimony of his church is that he was blown away because they demonstrated the love of Christ to this homeless man. They had no idea it was their pastor. Listen to what he said. I think it's important that you hear this. James McDonald said this after seeing how his church responded to this man sitting outside their church. He said, do you know that your father in heaven is given the same graces to the person that is hardest for you to love? He is giving it. He doesn't play favorites. He is giving the grace to everyone. If we're going to love like our Father in heaven loves, we don't get to play favorites. Now listen to this last line. I think it's very important. By favorites I mean so often we love the people when there is some benefit in it for us. Wow. Think about that. How many times are we willing to love or help or show kindness to someone if there may be some benefit in it for us in the long run. But that's not the love of God. That's not the love of Jesus. The love of God, the love of Jesus is unconditional. I could spend more time on that, but I got to move on. Number four, we must never forget the urgency of the Great Commission is accelerated because of the certainty of the coming judgment. Now, as I said before, just a little while ago in worship, there's this dichotomy that we see. The lion and the lamb. Jesus came the first time to be slaughtered as the perfect spotless lamb of God giving his life. But when he comes again, he's coming as a roaring lion to judge the nations, to judge the living and the dead. Where do you get that? Well, you see, it's interesting that Peter, when he begins to preach to the Gentiles, when he talks about Jesus, look at how he talks about Jesus. He goes through, he tells them about Jesus. He tells them about the gospel. He tells them about the mission of Christ as his death, burial, and resurrection. But look at what he says in verse 42, Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the Savior of the world? The gracious God of love? Is that what he says? No. Look at what he says. He came, excuse me, he says he commanded us to preach to the people, to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be what? Judge of the living and the dead. Now, Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He had a healthy fear of God. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning. And he says, The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We can be, as preachers and, and pastors sometimes, we can easily ignore the things that are difficult to preach if we're not careful. Because I'm going to tell you guys, it's easy to preach the grace of God. It's easy to preach the love of God. It's easy to preach the mercy of God. It's a whole other story when you start preaching the justice of God. When you start preaching the wrath of God. When you start preaching to your people and understanding that we need to have a healthy fear of God. Because honestly, when you start preaching grace and love and mercy and all of these things, all of those things are basically um, empty if you're not also understanding that God is a God of wrath and judgment and holiness and justice. Because if we don't have a good understanding and framework of justice and the wrath of God, then how can we ever understand and appreciate the grace and the mercy of God? We cannot ignore one without the other. He said, but what about Jesus? This is what I hear from people all the time. What about Jesus? Jesus is the epitome of love. Yes, he is. Guess what? He spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven. Think about what Jesus said when he said in Matthew 10 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus. Let me tell you another passage that Jesus says in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, the second coming. He's not coming to save. He's coming to judge. He says it in Matthew 25. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And listen, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Jesus. So, guys, we can't ignore that. We need to possess a healthy fear of the Lord to the point to understand that he does have the right, he does have the power to judge us, he does have the right to condemn us, he does have the power to to judge us to everlasting damnation. These are words that pulpits in America are avoiding altogether because it's very hard and difficult, but we need to hear it because we need to understand that it's real and that he is coming in judgment, and I believe that he is coming soon. And so that is what all of us deserve. And so basically, it puts us in a position before God that all we can do is plead the mercy of God, pleading the blood of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God. One of my good friends, his name is Telsa DeBerry. He's a pastor in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and his elderly mother was getting... Um, getting on up in years and, and he knew her health wasn't well and he got a call one day and it was, it was her time and she was dying and he was able to get to the house just before she passed away and he told me this and it just, it just always stuck with me and she was a very faithful woman, had a relationship with Jesus Christ and he said he got there and, he, and he was, they loaded her up fishing to get her into the ambulance and he's there by her side and he's like, Mom, you know, his Mama, he's just calling her name. He said the only thing she could say the last words that she said before she died, you know what she said? She said, have mercy, Jesus. That's all she could say. Listen, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good plea. When we stand before God, I think that that's probably, hopefully what I'll say. Lord, have mercy. Because I deserve judgment. Because that's who God is in His holiness and His Righteousness. But as Christians, unfortunately, do you know what we do many times? We live like there is no God. I do it. So I know all of you probably have struggled with this in your lifetime, even as Christians, even knowing that we're redeemed children of God, knowing who God is, knowing that he is the righteous judge of all, we still many times live like there is no God. I call it practical atheism. There are many Christians in the church who practice atheism. What do you mean by that? It means that we can still convince ourselves that if nobody sees us and we don't get caught, then it's okay. We can justify sin with the best of them. Things that we do in secret, things that we think in our minds, things that we say with our mouths, Shameful things, but we think as long as no one sees them, it's going to be okay. That's practical atheism. It's not living with the healthy fear of the Lord. Now, let me be clear. If you're a Christian today, you are not going to lose your salvation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's wrath is no longer upon you. You have been saved and sealed and redeemed. There's nothing that you can do to ever be put in that fear of eternal judgment again. You have been forgiven of all of your sin. But guys, there are some very practical implications and applications for you and me as Christians today. And I'm not even going to spend time to go into all of them because I know my time is short. But let me just share with you what Peter says. Peter says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, church, if you're expecting the world to want to know your God, then you need to take a minute to stop and look at yourself in the mirror and examine your own heart and ask yourself this question. The the judgment of God begins with you. Don't go looking out there at how bad the world is thinking, man, those people need to get their act together. Those people out there need to come to know the Lord. Those people out there are in fear of God's judgment. Wait a minute. We need to look at ourselves first. That's what Peter is saying. He's saying, if, if, the if the judgment begins here in the household of God, how much worse do you think, yeah, it will be for the people out there? But why is it that we would ever expect them to, to be anything different than lost people out in the world? And yet when we live like the world, what kind of a witness and testimony are we giving to them? When they see nothing different in God's people, then that's just giving them further validation and justification that they're okay. Do you see the implications? You're not going to lose your salvation. But you lose your witness. We can lose our witness to a lost and dying world. There's serious implications for that. And there are consequences to sin. And there are rewards. And there will be rewards in heaven that we can lose by living like there is no God. As our worship team comes up, I just want to close with this. The world needs to be warned of the coming judgment. It's not a popular message. It will likely bring us hostility and hatred. But we don't have a choice. John Bunyan's famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, where the main character in that book named Christian Comes to know the Lord and is on this journey of faith. And he goes to the people of his city and he begins to warn them and he says, Flee the wrath that is to come. He's trying to tell them that there is a coming judgment. And they can flee the wrath and they can receive mercy and they can, they can be forgiven of sin. All these things are so necessary for us understanding and how we're to relate to the world. Because regardless of whether or not we're perfect, we never will be. Regardless of whether or not we're living exactly like we should be as Christians, where many of us probably are not, it still does not excuse the fact, guys, that we are responsible to declare the coming judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ because He is coming and His judgment is real. He is coming as judge of the living and of the dead. And we need to understand that that certainty, that certainty that He is coming, that should accelerate our urgency. It should accelerate our urgency to be able to be bold in a lost and a dying world. So as we go, Here's our application. Lord, help us to learn how to really fear you again. Guys, I fail at that. On my board in my office, I have a couple of reminders that I try to keep up there. And one of them is this. Practice the presence of God. Now, you can look at that a lot of different ways, but I want you to think about it for just a second. Practice the presence of God. That means you can think about the joy of having the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit living in you and, and all the power and the, and the fruit of the Spirit that can flow through your life through the presence of God. But also, you know what it also implies? That wherever you go and whatever you do, you guess who you bring along with you? Think about that for just a second. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you let your eyes see and whatever comes out of your mouth, if you're a Christian, who's inside of you? Jesus So basically you're saying, come on, Lord, you're going to come participate in this ungodly thing with me. That's what we're doing. Learning to fear the Lord again, to have a healthy fear of God. Guys, we we need that desperately because judgment is going to begin where? Right here. We have to give an account. Okay. So as we sing and as we pray, I'll be up here at the front. If you guys need any counsel, if you need any prayer, maybe you need to pray right where you are. Maybe you need um, to know more about what it means to be a member of this church or want to know more about the church in general. I'll be up here at the front as always. But I want you guys to make sure that you get in a very good place right now in your heart and understand that we need a better and a more healthy fear of the Lord. And whatever you need to confess and repent, let's do that right now. Let's don't walk away. Let's don't leave this place where we're not changed. This is your opportunity. So let's all stand together. I'm gonna pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is a uh, it's a hard message. Many times, Lord, when we think about the fear of the Lord, the coming judgment, the line of Judah, that you are judge of living and the dead, Lord, and that we will have to give an account, Lord, and there's nothing that's hidden from you. Why do we live, Lord, like we can hide things? We have secret sin. And God, that strips the power in our life and that that just breaks fellowship with you and it just brings so many consequences in our life and it ruins our testimony and it just it leaves us powerless, Lord, to live the Christian life when we have so much freedom and so much uh, ability, Lord, to live faithful lives before you because of who you are and what you've done, God. And we, and we give it away when we just live in sin and we allow these things to enter into our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to... to Reclaim a true healthy fear of God. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.